podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The list of authors to put pen to paper on the history of Celtic is increasingly impressive, with figures such as Tom Campbell, Pat Woods, David Potter and Brendan Sweeney leading the way with a number of excellent books on the club we all know and love. This week we had the pleasure of speaking with the latest author to add his name to that illustrious band of brothers as Matthew Mark came into the studio to discuss his new book which covers the fascinating and sometimes bizarre story of Celtic's first ever title win. We were also joined by Matt Corr who co-publishes this one and it made for a really enjoyable discussion as they told some stories I guarantee you won't yet have heard about Celtic's earliest days. Enjoy the episode as we take a look at Celtic's first ever Scottish League title win. The Celtic Exchange a fresh insight on Celtic Football Club. Hi folks, Tino here and today on the Celtic Exchange I'm delighted to be joined by Celtic authors Matthew Marr and Matt Corr who are here to talk about Matthew's new book which covers the rarely told story of Celtic's first ever league title. Welcome along to you both. Matthew, how does it feel to join the fine list of individuals who have put pen to paper on the history of Celtic over the years? Uh, it's it's brilliant. It's one of these things that I think we worked it last year. It, it really annoys me because my dad can't quite remember the first game I went to, but it's about 41, 42 years ago. And and of all the stuff I've done over the years to do with Celtic, I've gone all over Europe, I've done all this, I've had a season title of 30 odd years now. And I've always wanted to write a book. It's just been something I was really determined to do. You've got great you've got great writers, you've had the Celtic Star in recent years, you've had Matt doing stuff, you've got people like sort of Pat Woods. Tom Campbell, more recently Brendan Sweeney, Ian McCallum, people like that. They're just great writers and it's just great to be part of that and actually do something that sort of tells one small part of the club's history. Yeah, definitely. Do you want to get started just on that note by telling us how this project all came to be in the first place? Yeah, I mean, as I say, it's it's one of these things I've always wanted to do, but I mean, in many ways, this is a bit of a COVID book um, in the sense that I think lots of people want to write a book. I think it's what, you know, you speak to people, everyone sort of says, oh, everyone's got a book in them is the, is the old adage. Um, and I think for me, it was that I'd always thought about it, but then suddenly COVID hits, there's no football to go to, you can't really leave the house. And it became a bit more of an impetus of, right, let's actually, let's do something about this. And then that was when I'd been playing about over the years with, if I wrote a book, what would I do? And as we were approaching, you know, this year being the 130th anniversary, the first time they won the league, it sort of seemed, well, by the time I research and write it, it's probably going to come out just in the perfect time. And that was that was exactly what happened. So, Yeah, and on that note, it's obviously to give the, the book its full title. It's The Bold Boys, Glory to Their Name, The Story of Celtic's First League Title. Glory to their name in inverted commas. Do you want to tell us a wee bit about that part of the, the title? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as as ever, you know, it, it, when you write a book, you sort of debate, well, what are we going to call it now? And you want something that's going to be interesting and all the rest of it. But but you also want something, especially, I think, for a history book that comes from the time. So Glory to Their Name is is basically, um, and I won't sing the song for you, you know, just uh, I'm not quite sure the listeners will be ready for that, but um, it comes from a newspaper at the time. So the, the a newspaper uh, called The Scottish Referee was one of the main sort of sporting publications of the time. Um, and they wrote a, a tune to the tune of the wearing of the green, but it's all about the Celtic team of that time. And, and the final line in it is glory to their name. So, given that you know that that season was one of you know the first time we've had league glory, that sort of seemed quite a good way to to bring it all together. Yeah, it all seems pretty apt. I'm, I'm looking at the cover just now. Is that a player in particular that's on the cover? A, a notable player? It is. Yeah, that's uh, Johnny Madden. Um, so Johnny Madden. Um, well, Johnny Madden's a, a really legendary figure, um, and not just in fact particularly not in Scotland. A big figure in Scotland, um, Dumbarton-born. Um, he was actually, well, in, it, in his own way, I've got the, the aside that, that Johnny Madden helped help form Celtic. And he, and he did in a very, very strange way. Uh, I don't know how much you know of the, sort of the background, but obviously one of the factors that leads to Celtic's formation is um, Hibs winning the Scottish Cup. So Hibs win the 1887 Scottish Cup and the club uh, Hibs, they don't go back to Edinburgh, they go to St Mary's and the Carlton where they have a big victory party, you know, God save Ireland, banners waiting for them and everything like that. And they had beaten Dumbarton in that final, um, just narrowly. But there was one forward um, playing for Dumbarton, centre forward, loads of chances, really, really should have taken them, really had a very poor game. And it was Johnny Madden. Now, there's this weird idea. If Johnny Madden scored and Dumbarton win, <laughs> who's actually to say? <laughs> who's actually to say that there's a Celtic? But in any case, uh, Madden, he's a big player during the season. You know, he's one of the main he's one of the main forwards. He um he's actually missing for a month. Uh, he's he's got a, the, he's got a dubious honour of being the first Celtic player sent off at the 
current Celtic Park ground, which was actually in the very first game we played there. He was banned for a month as a consequence. Um, absolutely terrible. But um, but yeah, so he's a really interesting figure. And as an aside, he's most fetid though in, um, in Czechoslovakia, or Czech Republic rather. Um, he's considered very much the father of Czech football. He went to, um, he moved to Prague, um, became a coach, and he's both in international football and club football in, in Czech Republic. He is... A legendary figure. That must have been hugely unusual for those times for someone to make such a move. It's not. It is unusual. It's not quite as unusual as you'd think. There's a lot. I mean, there's there's instances. Almost there's a debate about why he ended up in Prague. Like what took him there. There was certainly some Stag Scottish weekend. players there. Well, very possibly. Uh, there was actually one theory that it was a former Rangers player had gone over and had sort of suggested that he come over. There's actually one story says that the reason they signed him was that they thought he was a Rangers player. Um, but whatever he does, he he ends up over there um, and lives quite a long time, ends up marrying over there um, and, yeah, lives till after World War Two. but is really, really quite a legendary figure over there. Yeah, interesting tale. The last point I was going to make on the, the cover, so we'll, we'll share images of these socially, but the the vertical stripes as opposed to the hoops of the of the shirt and I think I'm right in saying the hoops didn't come until 1903 something like that and most of us will remember a century of the hoops in 2003 uh, but it's interesting to see Celtic wearing anything but the hoops you know in that kind of image absolutely I mean the the the, the club have played in, in simple terms you can say there's been three tops home tops um, there is you can debate a fourth actually because there is some accounts occasionally where you see them playing in all green but obviously the first shirt is the white shirt you know the famous the famous image with the Celtic cross um, and so on they then move to the the, the strips uh, the, the the green and white stripes we've got that's early eighteen eighty nine um, certainly the first time they win a trophy which was the the Glasgow Northeastern Cup which was May eighteen eighty nine they're wearing green and white stripes at that point. Um, as I say, occasionally some of the newspapers at the time say Celtic turned out in a green shirt. It's it's not common, but it is something that happens. Um, and then, as you say, August nineteen oh three is when you make the the fairly legendary switch when you you know you you get onto the hoops um, just now. But it's great seeing it's it's interesting you know seeing that side of things. You know that you know you tend to think of well it must be the hoops. That's that's naturally what you've got. But obviously at first that wasn't the. Yeah, very much just the, the look of the day. Matt, you've also now written several Celtic books yourself, um, but on this occasion yourself and David Falls at Celtic Star Books are the publishers of this one. So what I try to do to, to Matthew's story and how does this fit into your existing portfolio of books at the Celtic Star? Yeah, that's an interesting one because we, we obviously get, we get a lot of projects, a lot of potential uh, manuscripts, potential projects admitted to us of varying quality. You know, it may not always be a brilliant fit in terms of as you say, our portfolio, what we're doing. What I liked when I, when I seen that one, I mean, the, the first thing that jumps out, you can tell already, that Matthew's love for the history, his knowledge of the history, it's second to none. But the the quality of the writing that stands out, as a, as a writer, right away you're saying, I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying this story, it's very well written, uh, very well researched, you could, you again, alluded to a Scottish referee, so a lot of primary source reference, obviously done over time, taking great care, so... So those were those those were two boxes ticked right away, and I enjoyed it. So obviously I do an initial proof, and before we look at edit and I decide where we're going to go ahead, fabulous story. And then there's the there's the connection, you know, to Bold Boys. If you the second book we've we've done seven, this is the seventh one. But the second book was Wolfred the Bold Boys. It was the uh, three of us sort of thrown in uh, as authors with that one, and it sort of left the story just after the eighteen eighty nine. North, you know, Northeastern Cup final, so Celtic's first trophy. So there was, a, there was a logical folly on. There was a Scottish Cup of eighteen ninety two, which was the Scottish Cup at that time. Obviously, was the big thing. The league didn't come in to to play until eighteen ninety, but the the first league title, nobody's really done it. You know, so, so you know some some so, subjects have been covered so many times with Celtic, but nobody's really done that story. So there was a there was a few things that all came together: quality of writing. Subject material and the timing as well, because the 130th anniversary is coming up, so it felt good. And the more we, the more we talked it through, the more we thought this was something that we wanted to do. Yeah, and you know, with so many quality Celtic history books out there, it must have been quite hard to move into one that hadn't been touched before. You know, as Matt says, it's, it's something I've not seen before, and it sounds like it's maybe this is the first time that season in itself has been covered. Did you find that, Matthew, when you were you know trying to fine tune exactly what you were going to write about? Yeah, I think that there's definitely an aspect to that. As I say, people in recent years, like so, people like Brendan Sweeney. I mean, Brendan's done a lot of research in, in early Celtic history. Um, 
and has you know has covered you know some of this season. This was the first time though, and I think what it really warranted was a standalone book. You know, the the first time, if you think of the obvious one would be Lisbon, you know, I mean, there's just countless standalone books about Lisbon and, you know, some really fantastic, some add extra stuff and all the rest of it. But I sort of thought, you know, the, the league, it wasn't at the time as Matt, is, you know, talks about, you know, it really, it's, it's very much in its infancy when we win it. The Scottish Cup's absolutely what you really want to win. But most club histories they sort of make very little reference to it. You know, it's very often, it's it's literally just a line or, you know, half a page with us where it gives a brief summary. And it just wasn't really spoke about. But, you know, nowadays, clearly the league's the big thing. The, league, the league's what we want. And actually, if, you, if you're going to really sell it, you know, if you know the history, the idea is, then you actually have to know how that started. How did it come about in the first place? Um, and that's why I began to think, well, there's not really much being done on this. Um it's it fits in with you know the 130th anniversary coming up. This is the one that I'm gonna I'm gonna go for basically. Yeah. So the story, of course, is of Celtic's 1892-93 season. And for a bit of context, Matthew, can you tell us where Celtic were at that time? You know what kind of status they had, and obviously at that point, only five years into Celtic's existence. So what did the Celtic of 1892 look like? Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, as you say, they, they looked like people in green and white stripes rather than hoops. Yeah. But um. I think in a practical thing, there is a meteoric element to where Celtic came from. Um, so obviously, you know, the club is officially formed November 1887. You have your first game, May 1888. But actually, when you read some of the primary accounts from even September of November uh, time, 1888, so really months after it, you know, they're already talking about the famous Celtic club, um, you know, and there's already this idea, even from English newspapers, that this is really a force to be reckoned with. At a time when... To be honest, clubs just came and went, especially Irish clubs. You know, they, they would they would be there, they would sort of live for a few months, then they would disappear. Celtic were clearly different. Um, you know, the very fact of your first season, you've won, you competed in three finals, albeit only won one of them, including the Scottish Cup final. Um, so it was really evident from a very early stage that Celtic were big. By the time you get to 1892, so even as, as we approach the start of this season, there. The club's in a strange state and they're in a very positive state in many footballing regards, but they're also in a bit of state of flux already. So in a football sense, they've just had an amazing season. So 1891-92, the Holy Trinity, as it was known as, when they won the three major trophies that you could win um, at that time from, from a, a Glasgow team's perspective. They won the Scottish Cup, that's the big one. They win the Glasgow Cup and they win the Glasgow Charity Cup. Um, the Glasgow Charity Cup one's actually really interesting because... It's actually Celtic's last ever victory um, at the original Celtic Park. Um, they beat Rangers. Um, so, in a footballing sense, things seem really exciting in some ways. Um, but there's issues as well. The, the main one is we're not at Celtic Park anymore, or we're not at the original Celtic Park. So, you know, the old idea of, quote, the greedy landlord that beset the Irish had followed us to Scotland. The original Celtic Park landlord clearly sees a good thing wants to massively increase the rent, a ninefold increase in rent. And the club said, no, mm -hmm. you know, um, we're prepared to move. Um, so, you know, there was all, it was, where are we going to go? For a while, I mean, it, Matt's, you know, Matt talks about obviously, you know, Springburn and so on. But I mean, a serious move was, you know, do we end up in Springburn, Cowlairs area? Um, that was genuinely considered. Could Do we go south side of the river uh, in the Clyde? All these things were, were looked at, but in the end it was decided, no, we want to stay roughly where we are. And in fact, we want to be quite literally a stone's throw away. So you've got all this happening. You've got the beginnings of rumblings behind the scenes about issues in the club as well. We've got the rise of, you know, the, the club's very much beginning to split at this point between those that want to be a charitable organisation that plays football and those that want to be the very best football team that we can be. And that doesn't necessarily equate to the same level of charity that would have been perhaps envisaged at you know, at the outset. So at that point, we're, we're really mixed in terms of where we go next. Um, but footballing sense, in some ways, really positive. Although interestingly, at the start of uh, 1892-93 season, we were tipped for nothing. Um, most of our forwards were being expected to move on. Almost, I think the, the, the best phrase I saw, I think it was the Herald described the Celtic team for the season as a nebulous hypothesis. Um, I... Nobody knows who's going to be playing. That's two um, words. I don't know what I mean. <laughs> I'm not sure the Herald did either, but they put it in nonetheless. So, uh, 
Yeah, it's it, it's an interesting state. We've just had a great football season, but there's also a lot of movement going on. And really, I think at the start, I think at August 1892, I'm not convinced many people expect, you know, certainly expect us to go on and win the league. Um, and and all the as the case as that would have been. And the Scottish League in general, um was in its infancy so I think it only formed in 1890 yeah is that correct and before then as you say the, the Scottish Cup was very much you know given top billing can you tell us a wee bit more about that yeah I mean all this comes down to um, do you know what this really at its heart is money um, and to some extent it's the, the, there's the shadow of England um, because English football is, is a big part of that so the Scottish Cup starts out, I mean, we can really get back into it. The shape of football really looked drastically different then as now. Um, you obviously you obviously have the development of what sport's going to dominate Scotland. It didn't always have to be football. We've got rugby, we've got rugby football. You know, we've got elements of what rules are you going to do? If you go back to a lot of football from, say, the 1870s and so on, there's, there's cases of like teams come from one area to play teams for another, but they don't have rules or they don't have the same rules. So you, you've got this... The development, and then obviously you start in Scotland to see the rise of a more formalised system, and so on. Um, and as you do that, again, most of football at that time was really was a mixture of friendlies, which was actually the, the main thing that you did, um, and various cups. So certainly local areas would you know have their own cup, regional areas, and eventually, obviously, the Scottish Cup in the early eighteen seventies is, is formed. And as I say, because of that, because that's the national trophy, that's the big thing. By the time you get to um, the late 1880s, though, there's a bigger push for professionalism. There's a professional system in England. There's a league system in England. And quite simply, what that means is the best players from Scotland are disappearing. Um, they can they know they can get more money legally. The reality is they did get paid unofficially in Scotland, but they know they can legally get more money in England. And they're attracted to go down south because of that. So the, the push starts to be in Scotland. Well, how are we going to offset this? And the only way was to pay players. Now, as I say, legally you couldn't do that at that point, although that does change at the end of this season um, because of particularly Celtic's efforts. But as they um if you're going to have a if you're going to have a system where you pay your players, you need guaranteed income. And cup games and friendlies don't guarantee income. Um, you know, obviously you get knocked out of the cup early or you, you can't arrange a friendly. So the push then is that what we need then is a league system. And as you push for that, you get real tensions because there's those that favour the Scottish Cup and don't want a professional system and there's those that are increasingly going to the idea of a league system and that's really where we are um, yeah, it's, it's interesting and you've touched on the fact that there was what seems to be great resistance from the authorities to, to professionalise the game and you've mentioned there that Celtic played a, a huge part in changing that so what, what exactly was that part? So well I think it's, Celtic played it and not just Celtic but played the best way it would do would be an official and an unofficial role. If you do the unofficial side of it first, the reality is Celtic and most main teams in Scotland were paying players. There's absolutely no hint, there's no secret whatsoever about it. Um, they were either directly unofficially paying them. I mean, this is in the days where crowds weren't announced officially. So newspapers would, it's one of the reasons that when you read newspapers, one will say there was 15, one will say there's 20, because they're basically guessing amongst I th- I themselves. I think you'll find the Kellys were doing that in the Well, news. I was about to say, I think it's a habit that never <laughs> went away. You know, obviously James Kelly was there at the time and James Kelly's one of the ones. I mean, James Kelly is quite a legendary figure, first club captain, becomes chairman. But I mean, James Kelly was a joiner and, you know, maybe, maybe earning a couple of pounds a week, but had a £650 pub licence. And, there's no secret where that where that was coming from. So, in an un, I mean, and there's some there's some actually very funny stories about how clubs would would hide the the way that they were doing it. Um, I mean, Rangers, Celtic, and Hibs all did one, which is so Celtic um, were asked for the SFA to provide their books, and said, "Oh, we can't. The guy that has them is in the sanitarium, and it's da- too dangerous to give you these contaminated books, so we couldn't give them the club books." Uh, Rangers um, said that, you know, there'd been a fire and inside this steel um, safe, which really nothing else was damaged, but, you know, the books were gone. Hibs, you know, submitted accounts that were from the last three or four years where they'd had um, three or four different, um, you know, treasurers in one form of handwriting. (laughs) And it was all stuff like this. So unofficially, the reality is it was happening and there was an inevitability about we have to do that. In a more formal sense, however, um, 
Celtic. So John McLaughlin in particular, who was a uh, you know, key early figure, um, he was a big push for that. He recognised the only way that we can compete with you know England, the only way that we can we can keep our best players is to do the payments. And he, along with many other clubs, quite regularly put forward motions. Um, you know, at the at the SFA, um, the, the year before it was just rejected. I think McLaughlin's quote was, you know, it's it's like trying to stop the Niagara. Um, essentially, you know, the idea that you can you can stop the the tide of professionalism coming. So I think as Celtic and and other clubs as well are pushing for it, there just comes a recognition from other clubs that actually we need to do this if we're going to be able to compete with England. And so it is, it's May of 1893 um, at the SFA GM that finally the, the agreement is you can become a professional in Scotland. Yeah. Hooky financial stuff in Scottish football, eh? Who would have <laughs> thought? Um, let's look at the the team of the time, Matthew, and, and some of the the key figures, you know, in terms of talent, first of all, and, and personality. So Willie Mayley, of course, was a part of that team. He'd gone to be manager for 43 years between 1897 and 1940. But also guys like Dan Doyle, Sandy McMahon and James Kelly, who you've mentioned there. Do you want to tell us a bit about, you know, maybe some of those players or, or the big characters of that side? I think it, it's interesting because I've spoke to Matt about this and before. And what I sometimes try and imagine is if you could bring this team to now, who would the heroes be? You know, who would who would the wee boys and the wee girls have, you know, in the back of their shirts and who would the posters be and all the rest of it? And I think inevitably the forwards... It's like as now, very often the forwards are the most exciting. They're the, they're the ones that put the ball in the net. So I think your forwards would be the big one. I think probably the real hero would be Sandy McMahon. So Sandy McMahon um, finishes the top scorer that season um, and, you know, is, is clearly just a fantastic player. You know, new, newspapers regularly talk about him. I think, you know, one newspaper I talked about, you know, like Celtic without McMahon is like Hamlet without the Prince. Um, and, you know, McMahon would very much be, be loved and, and McMahon has probably got one of the most interesting stories um, which comes right at the start of the season um, because we were lucky we had him because he was kidnapped um, and the thing is that that's not made up this is what the newspapers would openly talk about kidnapping with transfers was really common um, in the days before professionalism and so on often what you did to get somebody tied to you was they played a game for you and once they'd played they couldn't Necessarily go somewhere else, so it wasn't unknown. That, you know, you it was you know it wasn't quite in the middle of the night. We're going to sort of drag you and you know tie you up, but you would come to a club and they would hide you away until such time as they could play you in a game, and then that was you. So Sandy McMahon was very much you know really really capable player, very much sought after. Had scored when we won the had when we won the Scottish Cup eighteen ninety two, and in particular Nottingham Forest. Um, although Ardwick, who become Manchester City later, they were also said to to be interested, but Nottingham Forest really wanted him, and he went. So he's in Nottingham along with um, Neil McCallum, who's another Celtic forward, who also the first ever scorer for Celtic. Um, and it was widely believed they'd gone. It was widely believed they'd signed. In fact, like the Scottish referee had a cartoon that was the two of them saying two singles for not. I we've gone and we're not returning. And then comes the spy element. Because this is what it's like. It reads like a spy story. So he's down in Nottingham and we're wondering where he is. There's rumours he's, he's in Nottingham. There is a very strong rumour that the main reason we found out where he was, and this might link because we play them in a friendly later in the season, was Notts County don't obviously want Nottingham Forest to sign this great forward. And one story is that they were basically saying, contacting Celtic and saying, this is where you can find him. So he's in he's in Nottingham, he's with, uh, he's with Neil McCallum, and so we send down essentially a search party that includes his brother, and we find him. And we sort of say, you know, you're coming with us. Neil McCallum, who was with him, says, no, he's no. And they make a run for it. And they make a run for it, and they get into a cab. And Neil McCallum, speaks to the cab driver and clearly threatens him, clearly says, if you take these men away, I'm going to let people know what you've done. So the cab driver goes away. You know, I'm, I'm not taking you. So eventually, they, they somehow manage to get away and they find a pub. So it's now McMahon, his brother, um, Celtic uh, official. There's some slight debate about which one it was. Um, but in any case, they're, all, they're hiding in this pub and they think, right, how are we going to get back to Glasgow without them finding us? So they eventually the next day they get to Manchester Station and they're a bit worried and they go in because, you know, are the Nottingham Forest board going to have men looking for them and all the rest of it? So they get this train and they're on to Glasgow. But even then, they're still really paranoid. 
So even though they should have got off at the St. Enoch station, they jump off one stop early at Eglinton just because they think, just to make sure they can't catch us. And there was then sort of arguments back and forth with us in Nottingham Forest about you've kidnapped him, you've taken him away. So it's just a, it's a really surreal, you can imagine if this was how we got Kyogo, you know, <laughs> so, you know, Ange had sort of pushed, Packed him in the back of a car or something along those lines. I'm trying to work out if it's maybe John LeCarrie that wrote this bit better <laughs> than yourself, Matthew. Um, so that's Andy McMahon, obviously a, a huge player. The Duke? Is that the Duke, name? that was indeed his name, yeah. Any story behind that? I suppose there must be, but do you know it? I, I, I don't know, to be honest, what the, the, the origin of it is. Certainly that's what he was known as. And in fact, actually, that was because he, he later has a pub. Um, he has a pub right next to... Um, just basically down from where Pets at Home would be close to uh, Parkhead now. Um, right. uh, uh, Cole Street it would have been on the corner of on Great Eastern Road, which we would now call the Gallagate. Um, and that was known as the Duke. Um, but I, I'd be lying if I said I did know what the, the, the origin of it is. Um, Another man of nickname, Dan Doyle, with a wild rover. He tells a bit more about him. I mean, what a man he must have been. Um, womanizer, alcoholic... Major, obviously, majorly capable player, um, involved in tragedy and, you know, controversy throughout his, his whole career. I mean, the most tragic thing in his life was he was involved in an incident that killed a player. Um, so he was playing, um, he, he was playing England at the time. Um, he was playing for Grimsby and he completely accidentally, but he clatters into a guy called uh, William Cropper, Roy. William Cropper, I think, and um, Cropper injured at the abdomen, collapses, uh, and and dies. Now th there was an investigation into it, and and the referee and everybody always said, you know, it was you know there was no malice, there was no deliberate thing. But I think there was now that sort of haunted his life to some extent, especially when he was in England. Quite a lot of it was something he'd have shouted at him during games. It's something that newspapers would allude to, and so on. So there's a tragic element. There's also, as I say, a controversial element. I mean, he's another example of the professional thing. He was playing for Everton. He was a big, big favourite at Everton. They absolutely didn't want him to leave. He'd have been on good money, you know, at Everton. And he, he came to Scotland to, you know, to, to go to just work, you know, and play football part-time, which nobody believes. Um, he actually got basically sued by Everton because Everton paid him, I think, £100 to, to stay and he took it, <laughs> but then yeah, but then he left. Because uh, actually, in the Everton accounts for the season that, that we that we win the league, there's actually a he pays back about eighty three pounds of it. Um, so he's in there. But I mean, as a footballer, he was clearly outstanding. You know, I mean, the very fact that English clubs are fighting over him shows you what you need to know. Newspapers regularly would pull him out as he was the man. You know, that that, that was really at the heart of the of the Celtic defence. Um, he was a left back, is that right? He was, yeah. Uh, so it's at a time when, you know, formations are very different. Um, so the formations of the time, I mean, 118s, 127s were not unknown. That was a that was a, a not uncommon thing. But by the 1890s, the overwhelming majority of teams, including Celtic, play a 2-3-5. Um, so you have a goalkeeper um, who's not necessarily a specialist. I mean, for instance, we're beginning to move to that. But for example, uh, the very first time uh, that we win the that we win a cup, the Glasgow Northeastern Cup, the goalkeeper, James McLaughlin, was a fullback in our first ever game. So it wasn't unknown that we did that. But So generally, you have your goalkeeper, you have two backs, um, so left back, right back, um, but that doesn't mean what it does now on the wings. That means central defenders, basically. You then have three midfielders, um, including your centre half, which nowadays we take as a defender, but meant your central midfielder. That's what James Kelly was. And then you have your five forwards. So you have... Uh, Outside left, inside left, centre forward, uh, inside right, outside right, um, playing a two, three, five, almost like a reverse Christmas tree would be the way to think about it. Um, and Dan Doyle's one of them, mainly partnered across the season by Jerry Reynolds, who was another interesting character. What's really interesting, we covered this just in our weekly show the other day there. Someone on Twitter uh, at EBL2017 had done a, a really detailed analysis of Ange Postacoglu's style and system and how he sets up. And when Celtic are on the offensive, we're in a 2-3-5, which most would think, you know, quite unusual. And it's, I suppose it's bizarre to think we've come 130 years and we're almost full circle <laughs> to some sort of variation of, of that uh, system. Matt, from your own, um, you know, different writings and research, obviously, particularly with the Walford and the Bold Boys book, you'll have come across a number of these figures within this team. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Matthew's talked about some real legendary players. I'm glad you mentioned James Kelly because... 
a real hero of mine. Kelly, Kelly for me is the first Celtic superstar, and he's probably the mate. He's probably the main reason that Celtic did reach the Scottish Cup final and hit the ground running because Ke- Kelly, Kelly, and Neil McCallum that we allude to as, as well were, were players with Renton who were the best side in the world. They were the world champions. They'd won the Scottish Cup back in 1888, and by managing to tempt uh, Kelly in particular, they, that allowed us then to go to the other clubs and other players. It was like you know the other players would follow on. So I tend to think, you know, we talk about who was the most significant Celtic signing of all time. For me, James Kelly must be right up there because without him, you don't get some of these other legends. As talked about Dan Doyle. Dan Doyle, a league championship winner with Everton. Fans favourite, but still, you know, made the journey back up to join an, the amateur club Celtic. Sandy McMahon, uh, jo- Johnny Madden, just one, wonderful, wonderful players. So they, most of these guys, if was, Dan Doyle wouldn't have been in the original because he'd been playing with Everton at the time, but yeah, absolutely right. Most of these players, key players, would have been part of that first team. So it's almost like we've picked the story up three years down the line, we've developed a bit and we're taking it on. So, yeah, wonderful it, players. And how would... Would Celtic attract such players? Would it just come down to money or would there be more to it? You know, did people want to be part of this new and exciting venture? You know, what was the big draw to, to these players to come from, you know, championship winning sides or cup winning sides at the time? Well, there's got to be an element. I don't imagine there's got to be an element of money in there. But also, as I say, Celtic hit the ground running. They became such a huge, I guess, rallying point, focal point for the Irish community in Scotland. That must have been most of these guys came in, came in from that sort of background. So that must have been a huge factor, but money certainly, prestige, and maybe the chance to return home and earn a living. I think all of these factors would be in. Would you? Would you yeah, agree? I think th- I think those things are all there. There's no question that you know initially Hibernian become very much the sort of the lightning rod for for, for Irish identity in Scotland, and again that takes you back to you know when they win the Scottish Cup, the first place they go isn't isn't Edinburgh, but is you know is the East End of Glasgow. So you've got definitely an element of of Hibernian doing that, and then Celtic take on from that basically um, you know just at a time where football is becoming a, you know a much a much bigger business and so on so I think you know it'd be naive to think money wasn't part of it because there's definitely a money element to it um, but I think there's also certainly an issue of we actually we're, we're we're all from Irish backgrounds in the initial in the initial teams some of some born in Ireland most commonly actually second generation Irish um, and I think the idea of we can be part of something big here um, you know as well as potentially, you know, returning to Scotland. Yeah. You're wearing a T-shirt as we speak. It's, um, we'll maybe take some shots of it after, but there's 30 names on the T-shirt, which I believe are the 30 players that represented the the club. We'll get to this in a wee bit as well, just in terms of your research for the, the book as a whole, but how challenging was it to find detail? There's a section towards the end of the book which covers every individual some information more sketchy than others. How hard was it to find details on these 30 figures? Sure. I mean, there's a, there's a bit of a mix. I mean, you know, as you say, there's some great Celtic books, some great Celtic history books that have already looked at many of of these players and so on. And you've got great websites like the Celtic Wiki and so on, where there's already lots of research done by loads of different Celtic, um, you know, historians, people with an interest in history and so on. So there's certainly an element, there is a sort of a body of research for at least for a large number of them, especially your bigger players like your Kellys or McMahons and so on. Um other parts of it, though, is, is just plodding along and being prepared to plough through page after page after page of, you know, newspapers and publications and, and magazines from, you know, the, the late 1880s, the early 1890s. And, you know, I, I really quite enjoyed that. Um, you know, you can do, there are some ways that you can do some research for different newspapers online. So some of it can be done, um, you know, at home. But a lot of it was, you know, Mitchell Library, you know, in the minute it opened in the morning, sit for 10 hours just staring at a screen. Um, when I get into something, I really, I struggle to, to break away from it. So it's very much just, I am going to get through this come hell or high water. <laughs> um, and, you, and you do that. So And as you go through it, you pick things up. And often what it's one thing then leads to another because sometimes you'll come across something and you'll say, all oh, right, well, that's... I hadn't really thought about this person being involved or I hadn't thought about this event or what's that talk about? I mean, the funny one I found recently about Johnny Madden um, was, again, if you take the view that, you know, Johnny Madden missing all the chances was why Celtic are formed. Um, I mean, one weird story, almost certainly Johnny Madden nearly drowned in the Clyde um, because him and his brother and another one were were drunk. Um, They'd gone for the day. So they were all riveters in, in Dumbarton in the shipyards They'd gone across for a weekend or, or, or a night anyway to to Greenock, um, 
and the next day they were getting you know they were getting a boat back now it's a bit of a debate about how they they came hold of this boat but in any case they got a boat and they start to try and basically roll presumably across the Clyde and then they, they start then they get stuck um it's, it's a lowish tide they're stuck out they're shouting for help somebody eventually hears and goes to them Johnny Madden actually asked to get lit off early. Johnny Madden's clearly a bit more sensible. He gets off, but his brother and the other guy decide, no, we are going for it. And according to newspapers, his brother walked home. His brother walked and swam home. He was believed drowned for a bit. Um, so you, you come across strange little stories like that. You come across lots of other, I mean, one, a figure who's not relevant directly to, to, the, to the league winning season, but that I've become slightly obsessed with is a guy called Mick McKeown. Now, Mick McKeown was... Um, very much an early Celtic hero. Um, you know, he's there for the he's, he's there for the sort of the first three seasons. Um, he was a back. Um, he's actually the one who Dan Doyle replaces. So it's it's McEwen leaving that is what frees up the the opportunity for Dan Doyle to come in. And I'd heard of him. He's one of these I'd heard of him, but he kept coming across him, even though he wasn't a Celtic anymore. Newspapers kept wanting to talk about the great McEwen and what's Mick up to now. Um, and you come across stuff like that. So it often it ends up being sort of self-perpetuating. The more you do the research, the more that it opens up new things that you can research and you keep going from there. And as long as you've got the patience to do it, then it's quite good fun. You sound like a patient man, Tim. The match of library is a long time, but now it sounds like you've uncovered some great stories. Um, moving away from the players, Matthew, and you know certainly without providing any sort of spoilers as such, but was there any twists in the tail or, or key moments that ultimately led Celtic to this first ever title success? Yeah, I think again, it's it, there's, a, there's a difference in how the season operates compared to what we would expect now. Um, you know, we pay a bit. We played roughly sixty games um, in that season. The, the reason I say roughly is you can slightly argue about whether one or two of them are Celtic or are they just the players unofficially organising themselves, which wasn't unknown. But if we say we played sixty games, so half of them are, are friendlies, pretty much, um, and about half of them almost are against English teams and so on. So. We, we have all these sort of varying games as the season goes on. And because of that, it's not as it's not as sort of linear as you'd expect now, you know, where you know when the league fixtures are going to be and league fixtures, you know, largely take precedence um, and, and we can work out exactly when it's going to be. And one team might get one or two games ahead, but you, there won't be that huge gap. That really doesn't happen. So what very much happens is at times, so take, for example, we start the league season we, we play our first ever game at the, the current Celtic Park site. We beat Renton. A week later, disaster. There's only 18 games and we lose in Edinburgh. Um, we lose to Hearts. Um, and there's this element, you know, when there's only 18 games um, and you've already, you know, you're already behind, how far how far behind are we going to fall? We then will go to England for a, a wee while to do a wee mini tour. So, you know, we don't play, the league doesn't stop, but... But you know, you know, Celtic might never stop now. But we did then to go and play friendlies, um, and and we go there. So then you start to get when you we so we play games up to November. Um, there's no more league games for three months. Now that wasn't deliberate. It was really connected to, to weather as much as anything else. Um, then you get cup games that start, and cup games do take precedence. There's very much a hierarchy. Scottish Cup, you know, outranks the Glasgow Cup, which in turn outranks you know league and, and all these types of things. So. By the time we get to sort of early April, we're we're sort of on the face of it nowhere. We're seven points behind Rangers. Rangers haven't lost. Rangers are clearly going to win the league. That's that's very much how it looks. Um, you know, they haven't lost at all this season. Um, they're having an amazing season, especially, you know, compared to their previous one. And we're seven points behind. When it's also, of course, only two points for a win. But we've got quite a lot of games in hand, which hides that slightly. Um I think the turning moment, the turning point comes mid-April um, and it's it's all down to one day. So we're at home at Third Lanark and we absolutely batter them 6-0. So that's fine. But Rangers are playing Dumbarton. Now, Dumbarton have a strange season. Dumbarton are the champions. They're actually two years champions because they jointly shared it with Rangers in the first season. But they're having a terrible season. They've lost almost their entire team at the start of the year. And, and actually... But for the last day, they come close to being in the position of being thrown out of the league. That's how poorly they do. So clearly Rangers aren't going to struggle. But they get but Rangers get battered. And this is sort of a turning point because now we're playing Rangers a week later and now it's swung. 
the Rangers game when we play them the week after that they've lost for the first time and that, and that we we've, we've beat Ferdinand that was really that was when our that was sort of make or break Rangers win that we can't catch them assuming they win their final game which they do in the end um but we win you know even though we've still got to win we've still got a few games in hand so it's not guaranteed including against teams that beat us the year before to stop us winning the league but we do. We beat them at Parkhead. Um, so I think that week, sort of late April, is really what turns it where Rangers looked like they were going to coast onto it. But suddenly they get beat and then they lose twice in a row, you know, from having been previously unbeaten. So I think that was the moment where you couldn't guarantee it. We still had to win the games, but I think that's the trigger point where this is ours. Yeah. And Matt, from again, from your own writings and research, how familiar were you or are you with the tale of that season, the various, you know, things that unfolded throughout the, the calendar year. No, I have to say an awful lot of that was, was new to me, but maybe before I go back to it, do you know what I love about that Rangers game that Matthew just described? How how many similar similarities there were between eighteen ninety three and nineteen seventy nine, ten men won the league. Celtic were games and games behind and the, the our last game well a wee bit of reversal, our last game was against Rangers that year. But basically if we hadn't won that night then Rangers had the games to go and win it. And it was the same pressure. I don't, if Celtic don't win that game, we don't win the league. I think that's that's quite clear. But it's, it's funny how history repeats itself so far down the line. But in answer to your original question, I obviously knew, knew when they'd won the league. I knew Dumbarton had won it the first two years. But the, the, some of the some of the stories, even some of the stories away from the football, which is probably a point worth making because there's history books or books, Celtic books come in all different shapes and sizes. You've got validity to one or two other. You've got the, I guess, the, villain, the the heavy tomes of reference history. But I think what Matthew's managed to do here, so there's, you could do what you want to do when you read a book. You want, you want to learn something and you want to enjoy it. And he's got that right balance because he's got that balance just right because... In addition to in addition to the stats and the facts and, and having enjoying the enjoying the tale of a season, the goals and all the normal football stuff, some of the things that, that happen over the course of the season beggar belief. You've touched on one or two, no doubt you've touched on others. The beggar belief. I mean kidnapping. Some of the stuff it's actually it's like what was it, a, a ripping yarn, a riveting good tale. It's actually a really enjoyable, entertaining book as well. And it just shows how differently things were back in the time. I found myself even proofing it the first time, bursting out laughing. What are you laughing at? I can't believe that happened, and it's absolutely true. So, so. And on that, Matthew, have you got any, whether it's favourite characters or, or sections of the book or you know, tales that you found particularly enjoyable or interesting throughout the, the process? I think I, I think I, I like, and to some extent this is one of the factors that drove me towards it, I like the strange response to winning the league because there's actually a really strange response to winning the league. So on the face of it, again, if nowadays, you know, if we win the league this season, you know, it's party time, everyone's celebrating, everyone's really happy. And there's sort of a huh, argument when we win. You know, there's not really this element of, there's not really the same drive. So, you know, when we first win the, the you know, even the Glasgow Northeastern Cup, you know, there's a, there's a great line in one of, you know, Irish Brigton will be celebrating tonight. Uh, which is maybe not a phrase that people would expect. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but that was, you know, this was, you know, it was a really, really big deal. And there's, you know, when we've won, there's big, you know, the stories of, you know, like being greeted by huge fans. When Dumbarton won the league, you know, there's they were greeted by a, a massive crowd back in Dumbarton, put on a cart, carted through the town. And when we win the league, there's, there's a little bit at night. I mean, we so in the old Celtic Park Pavilion, um, which you know would be on the 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 Janefield Street Cemetery side, um, at that point in time, in terms of the you know the the second Celtic Park when it first came, they have a sort of party that night. There's organ music, uh, probably by John McLaughlin. There's some songs. There's speeches of congratulations from the committee to the players and the players to the committee. And then that's sort of it. There's not really any account when you go further of, oh, well, the fans were out, you know. So, I mean, there was 3,000 there that night, which by the standard of the time is is not massive. It's not tiny, but you would sort of, a big game, you would be expecting ten to 15,000, a really big game, like a cup final, even more than that. But so to have, you think, God, only 3,000 people who were there to see, you know, what was history quite literally in the making. So I really liked looking into that side of it because... It's understanding to some extent why historically it's not really been spoke about. The club, there's an element of the club at time. I mean, the, we played about, for example, one of the names we'd looked at for the book at one point, my working title for a long time, 
because I thought it summed up the story was just a bit of satisfaction because that was a newspaper quote. So Celtic um, didn't win the Scottish <coughs> Cup, but at least they've had a bit of satisfaction in claiming the league. And it was just, it was very much this idea of, oh, well, you know, I suppose it's better than, it's better than nothing. Interesting though, by the time you get to the, the Celtic AGM that season, you do see quotes from a lot of the committee talking about how, but in the long run, this is the one that counts. Because actually, this is a far better test of your abilities than, you know, anyone can win or lose a one-off game. But obviously, to do it consistently across the season. So I really liked, you know, that aspect of what happened when we first won it, especially in contrast to the the, the sheer excitement and God, think when we won the league last season, think of the, you know, the tens of thousands of people, you know, that, that were in Glasgow City Centre as against, you know, what it was, the, you know, well, then it would have been 129 years ago. So I bet Dan Doyle found a part of that night. <laughs> he'll, he'll have an out causing it somewhere by the sounds of it. Um, Matthew, just in terms of the, the process of writing the books, obviously with this being your first book, I'm keen to ask how you found the process in terms of research and otherwise you've spoken about, you know, 10 hour days at the Mitchell and different things. So how challenging was the process in general, particularly when trying to research a subject that's now 130 years old? Um, yeah, so again, there was a sort of mixture to the process. As we said, a lot of days were spent going to the Mitchell. Um, you can do some of the research, which is where it started from if I go back to COVID. You know, there's some websites um, where you can access old newspapers um, and, you know, you can obviously find a lot of the, the detail in there. So there's a process of that. I mean, from my perspective, I, I know it, sort of, it sounds a bit like, you know, it sounds a bit of a cliche, but you start with the first step and then, you know, after 10 steps, you're 10 steps further on than you used to. So... For me, it was because of especially, and I think this was also a thing that attracted me to the book because it was quite linear in the sense of I basically started in August. I mean, it was as simple as that. I did a bit of background reading before I'd gone in um, for the, the accounts that maybe HUD spoke at least partly about it. But I literally would start, you know, well, I actually started in July, you know, like looking at July 1892. So, and you just went through, so you went through newspapers like Scottish Referee, um, Scottish Sport, and you just, you just read them. It's as simple as that. And you take down the notes as you're going along of, oh, that's that's quite interesting or that might affect things later and so on. And, you know, eventually you start to build, you build up a sort of portfolio. And then as, as, I, as I went through it, the best thing I did, and it's what I would do for any future books, was an accident. I started an Excel spreadsheet just for the league games. And then I'd thought, well, actually, I should probably put in the cup games. And then I thought, well, if I'm going to put in the cup games, I should put in the friendlies. And then because I really like colour coding, so they each had a different colour. But then after that, it became, well, I should just put in everything in order. And that was exactly what you did. And so I've now got these at home. I've now got this Excel spreadsheet that's like got hundreds and hundreds of entries. And it's just literally an almost day by day account. Um, and, and, and actually one of the things that I hope is what makes the book um, readable to people. I think sometimes with football books, and, and I know it's interesting because it's a couple of things that people have said to me for this and for other like publications that I've written for. Oh, it's not just a, they, this was the team, they played a game, then next week they played another game, then next week they played another game. And actually, the the, the spreadsheet thing was really useful to actually get a quick idea of, I do, I, I do want to mix the stories. I don't want it to just feel like, here's a game, here's a game, here's a game. Instead, I want to be, here's a game. Here's something that came from the game. Here's a completely different issue. And let's look at the wider context as well, because, you know, what's happening in other teams? What are they doing? Because that's an important part of it. And you do then get into funny little stories. You know, I think one of the funniest ones, our first game after that three month split because of the weather was at the end of January. We went to, to Edinburgh to play Leaf Athletic um, at Bank Park, which would be fairly near where the modern Easter Road ground is. And now that was actually, that was a game that I actually we came close to, it would have been a real worry because we'd lost there the year before. And in some ways that was arguably the trigger point to not win the league the previous season. But we were there. But on the same day, and this shows you the really strange things, on the same day, um, we we decided to share a train with another team from Glasgow that was going to Edinburgh for a game. And that includes fans, by the way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so Rangers, of course, were, were going to Edinburgh. They were going to play St Bernard's. I mean, I think it's funny because one, the idea that you would share a train now Secondly, the idea that you'd get to play and both teams play in Edinburgh at the same time on the same day. Um, and perhaps best of all, uh, Rangers were obviously going to beat St Bernard's. That wasn't a difficult game in the Scottish Cup for them, except it was because they lost. <laughs> uh, featured, helped, helped by one uh, Barney Crossan, who's another interesting ex-Celt uh, 
uh, who becomes, well, was an ex-Celt who becomes a Celt again. Um, so there's lots of little things like that. And I think if you put them in, that's what I hope makes the book, you know, readable for people that it's not just, here's the games. There is all the wider stuff that's yeah, happening. Yeah, absolutely. And just, you know, building the, the bigger picture, the narrative around that, I think is what makes it really interesting. Matt, in terms of your own experiences of the, the research process, I suppose it's a question for you both, but do you rely a lot on previous Celtic authors and, and club historians, guys that you've already mentioned, Matthew, Tom Campbell, Pat Woods, David Potter, who I think wrote the foreword for the book as well. Um, is the phrase standing on the shoulders of giants apt when it comes to you know picking up where these guys have left off? Yeah, I think so. I had the pleasure of meeting uh, Pat Woods fairly recently and what, what, what a lovely man, what a fountain of knowledge. We seem to spend about an hour just bouncing, did you know this, did you know that? So you learn a lot. David Potter, Obviously, part part of our team, wonderful writer, puts you in the moment very much as, as Matthew does. So, yeah, they, they, these guys are inspirational. In, t- in terms of in terms of approach, I think they're all different. My, my approach tends to be, I'll do the I'll do the research first. I'll do I'll do a brain dump. Once I've got, I'll do a brain dump in terms of the content I've got. Come up with an outline structure. Then I like to do a lot of the primary research first, and after that's done. So, if you're talking about that one, when you put through the end of the season. Then I would end up back in and have a look and see what what else was said. So I think I, I guess no two writers will have exactly the same process, but that's that's when it works for me. I like to have the vast majority of stuff down in paper, down in print. That's that's my take on it. And then I like to go and challenge that, and if need be, supplement it by you know by referencing other you know referencing other authors' work. That, that's how I do it. In do you feel an element of pressure? Falling on from these guys These guys are revered You know and rightfully so Amongst the Celtic support Do you feel a bit of pressure Having to follow on From what they've done No absolutely I mean as you, as you say David Potter obviously did the, the forward for the book And David is utterly prolific I, I mean I, I've never really I mean I I mean, I, I own about 340 Celtic books um, And I'd have to sit down I'm actually um, One of my side projects Just now is just doing A spreadsheet of You know like things on that But I mean David must be The most prolific In terms of publication I can't think of anyone That would, would be more Pat and Tom Campbell. I mean, I, I knew Pat about years ago. I used to go on the, the Lisbon Lions bus, um, the supporters club, um, and Pat used to go there. And, and, and obviously, I mean, it just goes about saying the, the amount that he knows about, about you know, the, the club and all the rest of it. And I think, although there's been histories done over the years, I think, so the, the most famous one, I think, would be The Glory and the Dream, which was Pat Woods and Tom Campbell. And I think with that book, I think that was really the first time that proper historian almost had really sat down and done a very detailed account. There had been other ones, you know, like James Handley and even Willie Maley um, himself, um, although Willie Maley's book's wrong in places, which is quite funny. Like, he clearly remembers the wrong... He remembers things that didn't happen. Um, We've all done that. Absolutely. So the point of it is that you, you, I think with all these people, you know, Pat and, and Tom Campbell, you know, very much starting... I think a lot of the modern era of, of history writing, and you, you do feel a certain pressure because you sort of think, "God, you know, I hope people like this. Hope I've not done anything wrong, <laughs> and you, you hope people are going to sort of want to engage with it." But I mean, fundamentally, I think there's that element of if you sit back in life and just sort of think, "Oh, it might not go right," you'll never do anything. So actually, what you really want to do is say, "Well, I am going to do it," and there comes a point where. You've got to be confident in yourself as well. You've got to actually think, no, I've, I'm writing this because I've done the research because, you know, I know this. You know, I mean, you know, basically, you, you sort of think, the, the weird thing is, it's probably the person in the world that knows most about this topic, this single one topic now. Um, and you sort of think for that, you have to be confident in yourself to, in doing that. Yeah, I think you're right to, to say so. Um, while I remember, I, I think I've seen somewhere online that Pat Woods had taken a wee bit unwell recently, but I think he's doing better now. So our, our best wish is absolutely, you know, it goes without saying from all of us that he's doing a lot better now. Um, I noticed, David, that, uh, sorry, names mixed up. I noticed, Matthew, that you've dedicated the book to your dad, who you credit with creating your love of Celtic. You mentioned that's something that you appreciate and understand more and more now as you yourself have grown older and, and you have children of your own. So tell us a wee bit about that and just, you know, your, your own journey into Celtic through your dad. I think it's the old adage, you know, football was invented so Scottish men have something to talk to their dads about, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I mean, my dad, uh, you know, my, well, my dad has first went to, again, late night, didn't know mine, but late 50s he would have went to his first game um, and, you know, has gone... You know, all over. Well, he's he's banned from future European finals because you know he's been to two and we didn't win them. <laughs> um, so my dad's gone, you know, everywhere. And and growing up, I think that that was that was the major thing 
was going to football, you know, with my dad, uh, you know, in terms of if you're talking sort of bonding moments and all the rest of it, it's not that we'd have a conversation like this, but, you know, that was very much the moment, you know, my dad, you know, would take me place, you know, we would go to home games, we would go to away games, we would go further afield, you know, we'd go to like friendlies in England and we would do all these sorts of things. And I think there's that element of, you know, you sort of want to be grateful. I remember a story that's not quite about Celtic, although actually Celtic play a really funny role in it. But we went to, I was playing a football tournament when I would be about nine and we went to, um, stayed in Southport, we played in Blackpool. And one of the days we had was you could basically go to the, um, the swimming pool in, in Blackpool. But if your dad was there, you could do something else. And dad said, do you want to go to Old Trafford? Now I was a wee boy, I'd be nine or 10. And I was like, well, oh, I don't know. I want to sort of go with my friends. But everyone else going, I wish I was getting... There. And so I said, right, let's go. So we got the train for Old Trafford. And it was funny because we we walked around and we, we tried to get on the tour and you couldn't get in because it was full. And we'd walked around and we were just leaving and this this old guy came out with a Man United blazer on and he said, tour's starting, are you coming in? And my dad says, no, no, we're not booked. And I was on a Celtic top and he'd said, young lad's got a Celtic top on and you come. I'm, I'm not bothered about that. But I think you, you do realise, and it's what I do say in the book, that you, you realise that actually... There is this big thing. There is this big commitment to taking you know your places and all the rest of it. To, you're not going to the pub. You're going to say no, no. I'm going to take you to the football. Um, and 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 it is that commitment, and it is sort of the main link that you still have. I still sit next to my dad. I mean, that's you know, as I said, I've had my season ticket more than thirty years now. We've sat together the entire time. Um, and and even when I used to go, you know, even when I started going to games myself, you were still, you know, sitting next to to dad because by the time I started going on my own, it, it was all seated stadiums anyway. So. I think from my perspective, um, my dad, if he ever listens to this, will, will not be essentially happy to hear any such conversation. But Particularly you know, these are jinx in Europe. Well, absolutely. But yeah, so I, it, was my, it was my small way of saying, you know, like, thanks very much. Yeah, I think it's a, a great thing to do, to be honest with you. And I think within your introduction somewhere, you call it an obsession with Celtic. And I don't think that's too dramatic a term. I, I would potentially argue that all of us in this room are obsessed with Celtic in, in various shapes or forums and I think it's great that you've had the privilege to dedicate the book to your dad so I, I think it was a really nice touch. Um, I know I'm fast forwarding briefly for 130 years here to bring us up to you know modern day Celtic and, and what we're doing just now but what's your own just brief thoughts on Ange Postacoglu's Celtic and how it's all going? I mean you know what's anybody going to say it's it's fantastic it's it's remarkable the way it's remarkable the way that he's come in and he's been here forever because that's, you know, that's what it feels now. You know, you think we're only talking, you know, we're not even talking, you know, two years ago, you know, not far off a year and a half where it was Ange who and, you know, he'll be out the door by Halloween and, and all this type of stuff. Um, and yet he's already in and he's part of it. And and, and I think the, the, the true measure, what I really like about Ange is, is a totally off the field thing. So... Uh, I've got two girls. Um, one of them's not interested in football, but my, my oldest one really, really likes it. And I take her Celtic, Celtic women, Scotland, all these different things. And um, so we, I took it. So one of the games we were at, one of the games at Parkhead, um, and we'd said after, you know, let's hang about and see if we can get photos or whatever with the players. And the way it was, it was sort of in COVID, some COVID restrictions still on. So there's, there's gaps where you can't really get near. But Ange came out. And he must have stood there for about an hour, just walking up and down the line. You know, nobody didn't get a picture with him, you know, because it would have been very easy for him to have come out, quick wave, couple of photos, go away, I've done my bit. But the fact he literally, he went up and down every aisle and then as new people came, he went up and down and did it. He must have been out there for about an hour. And you just think that's a man that gets it. And he doesn't just get it in terms of putting a great team on the park, which he clearly has done, he gets the whole ethos of the club and he gets all these aspects. And I think that's what makes him, I think that's what makes him somebody that the fans have really taken to. Clearly winning on the park matters, but the rest of it matters as well if you're going to be really, really taken in. And, and I would say, I think there's an argument in my lifetime. Billy McNeil was different because obviously Billy McNeil was, you know, legendary figure. So Billy McNeil didn't, and Tommy Burns was his help, obviously didn't have the same level of success. But for somebody, in terms of the people that have come from outside the club, possibly Martin O'Neill, um, but I would say, you know, that's really the ones that stand out as the ones that are not from a Celtic background, as it were. He's the one that just so quickly has become part of the, you know, part of the family completely. Yeah, and I think if Matt's mentioned James Kelly as maybe the original Celtic hero, I think Ange is very much the Celtic hero of the day. I think just 
everybody to a, a man and woman just adore what the guy's doing and, and long may that continue but to bring us back to the book um as mentioned this is obviously your first book matthew and again a huge congratulations for bringing it into print has it given you an appetite to write further books on celtic or indeed any other subject absolutely i mean i'm, I'm scared to answer this in case my wife hears it <laughs> <laughs> no um yeah no I, I think it definitely has um i would say I've probably batted around. There's probably about five or six other ideas. Um, I've probably about sixty percent of the way through two of them. Um, Any exclusives for us? Anything you'd like? No, to well, one of them is I've mentioned them already, but the Mick McEwen story. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's something I'll do. Um, it's harder to do a story on a single player, you know, in terms of there. But I think there's enough in the life of McEwen, who's just a, a, an absolutely tragic figure, um, as well as a heroic figure. Um, you know, like his death at the end, which is literally in the shadow of Celtic Park, is as horrific an ending as you would as you would perhaps want, or rather not want. Um, so I think I certainly want to do him. I've got a few other ideas about themes that, again, sort of early-ish history, um, you know, that, you know, looking at some of the things, but again, trying to bring out topics that haven't necessarily been spoke about in substantial detail. They might not be things that people have never heard of, but it might be, well, I read a couple of pages in a book rather than, something that's that's dedicated so i think I, th- I think certainly from my perspective i'd certainly like to do more i really enjoyed it i've really enjoyed the process of of, of bringing it out you know like the, the 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 work that, that matt and david at the celtic star have done is, is is brilliant and stephen that was the designer it just looks fantastic and i think what really shows you how good it looks um is it's interesting the number of people i've shown it to since it came out and they're all a bit like god that actually looks really good i don't mean this in a bad way but when you told us you were getting a book it was a bit like Oh yeah, it's just going to be, you know, but it looks fantastic, you know, and, and that was one of the reasons, you know, what did I really want? I wanted a book that looked great. I wanted a book that was, you know, people would like. I wanted a book that was in the Celtic shop. <laughs> that was, you know, on a personal level, just on a pure, that's something that I've I've done. That was really what I wanted and it looks great. And so Matt and David would say I've done a brilliant job. Yeah, 100%. And on that note, Matt, how much have you enjoyed, you know, supporting Matthew in this venture and, and working alongside him on this project? Yeah, it's been it's been hugely enjoyable, as I say. Even even listen to some of the stories again, because obviously it's a few months now since we edited the book and you move on to other things. But actually reliving some of the stories, I'm sitting here chuckling. So yeah, very, very quality of writing. And uh, as I say, very, very enjoyable story. Very, very interesting story. I think Celtic fans will love it. Yeah, I think so too. Matthew, as we start to draw things to a close for this episode, what are your ultimate hopes in terms of what readers get from the book? So, you know, is it more of an understanding of that time in Celtic's early history? maybe an appreciation for Celtic's early impact in the Scottish game, or even recognition for the heroes of that time, you know, the Duke, the Wild Rover and, and various other characters. What's your your big hopes for it? I think everything that you've just said, I think first and foremost, it is about acknowledging, you know, you mentioned my T-shirt earlier, you know, but fundamentally, there's there's 30 men, you know, these are the 30 men that all played in league games that season. Um, you know, some of them 17 out of 18 games, some of them once, and, and that was them disappeared. And it's partly about giving them their place in history, you know, that's what the book's title is about. It's glory to their name. You know, some of these men, they do live down the ages. Obviously, you're, you're Sandy McMahon's James Kelly's. Some of them were in and out, you know, literally. They were in for a game um, and then they went off. You know, I mean, I look at the likes of, uh, you know, Robert Scott and people like that. I mean, Robert Scott was a, an Airdrie player who guessed it. He guessed it in one game and his one game was the game we beat Rangers. That's the, the clinching one. And you think... What a what a real you know what a real achievement to sort of say uh, in terms of you know, your one league game for Celtic was the moment that basically set you on for winning all the trophies we've done since because fundamentally winning matters much more than you'd think. I mean, I, I alluded to it earlier, but there's so many clubs, Irish clubs especially, formed in the 1880s and 1890s, and they just disappear. Um, and actually, Celtic's early victories are utterly crucial because it's that that establishes the club. It's that that establishes them both with fans, with players that want to come, um, and all these different types of things. So I think first and foremost, and that's what the book's title is about, I want people to just know about the men that set us on the path to where we are now. I think beyond that, though, you'll, you'll absolutely you'll get a wider context of Scottish football at the time. Um, 
and just of the development of football and so on. So I say it's hopefully something that clearly it's mainly for Celtic supporters, um, but it's hopefully somebody, you know, anybody that's got a footballing interest um, would, you know, would be interested in. But first and foremost, it's about remembering the men that won it. Yeah, and I think that's a, a great aim for it overall. Finally, Matthew, where can people pick up a copy of the book? It's available now, isn't it? It is available now, yeah. So the the main um, and obvious way, especially if you want a signed copy, you know, um, is to go to the Celtic Star website. Um, so the Celtic Star uh uh, Celtic Star Store Celtic Star Books uh, Celtic Star Books um, uh, website so if, if people Google search that they can get it um, it is as I mentioned earlier it's also going to be in the Celtic shops as well so you know if people are you know at, at a game or anything like that then that's something they can pick up as well um, so different ways and it's also available in, in a Kindle version as well if people don't you know want if people like obviously reading you know not the hard copy but the on their Kindle and what we'll do is we'll be sure, sure to include the, the links to that and all other relevant stuff within the show notes here so everyone can access that. People can also engage with you on Twitter, Matthew, at Hail Hail History. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also Matt here at Bulla underscore Vogue. And just as we start to close things off, Matt, uh, Matt any final words from yourself? No, it was just one of the things that we never covered earlier. We were talking about, we'd been talking about VAR before the recording and there's... Uh, so the 1892 Scottish Cup final was Celtic and Queen's Park. We, we won. Queen's Park are obviously the kings of the day. They'd won nine, I think they'd won nine at that time. And and obviously we, we beat them 5-1. The following year, we're drawn against Queen's Park again in the Scottish Cup. And there's a highly, highly contentious moment that we'd, we could probably have done with the introduction of VAR because in those days there's no goal nets. And there's a shot that goes through that's Queen's Park's winner that clearly gets past the post in the eyes of, I think, just about everyone. And Willie Maley in the... And, and the stramash that leads up to the goal loses his teeth, and the goal is the goal is given. It's described as a goal that never was, and that that potentially cost Celtic the, the League and Cup double. So even so, that so far and refereeing controversy uh, is not a new thing. But the, the, I guess the positive is that that goal led to the introduction of goal nets initially in the, the latter stages of the the Scottish Cup, but then eventually in total. So it's hard to think that you were playing games, big games like this, league deciders. There was no nets. But uh, but that's I I wasn't aware of that story until until I read Matthew's book. I thought that was a cracker. We've been getting robbed since eighteen ninety two, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, I couldn't possibly comment on that. Probably before that. as well. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. But listen, all that's left is for me to thank both Matthew and Matt for joining me here today and for the work involved in bringing another brilliant new book to the rich collection of Celtic history books that are available. From all of us here at the Celtic Exchange, we wish you every success with the project and beyond. So thanks to you both and best of luck with it all. Network.